The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome to episode 85 of the Love in Action podcast, where we help make your business be both good for people and for profits. This year's chaos has put every leader to the test. I think you will agree with me. And to adapt, there are some things that leaders need to do and not only do differently, but also do consistently. And we have to be ruthless about it. Ruthless consistency. That's actually the title of a brand new book by my distinguished guest, Dr. Michael Kanick. In Ruthless Consistency, How Committed Leaders Execute Strategy, Implement Change, and Build Organizations That Win, Michael shares a leadership model that is needed now more than ever for leaders to refocus on what must be done to succeed in this crazy times that we're in, and then what they need to do to make that happen. And he's going to tell us about how to implement this model for your own success. So besides authoring books, Michael Kanick is also the president of Making Strategy Happen, a consulting firm that helps leaders turn ambition into strategy and strategy into reality, based largely on the principles of his book that you'll hear today. And previously, he managed the consulting division at the Atlanta Consulting Group, and prior to that, He held a leadership role at FedEx. Michael earned a PhD in the psychology of human performance from the University of British Columbia, a former national championship winning college football coach. He's also a member of Marshall Goldsmith's 100 Coaches Global Initiative. Michael, welcome to the Love in Action podcast. Great to be here. Thanks, Marcel. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And we start with a gratitude moment. So, for you, in this day and age that we're in, what makes you smile when you get up in the morning? A lot of things make me smile. I'm naturally oriented that way. Just the sheer possibilities we have, despite what's going on with the pandemic, despite some of the turmoil and upheaval, the fact is we still live in a fantastic world of possibilities and opportunities. And if we're you know, able to look through some of the fog to see them, really, it's, it's all out there for us. Very uplifting. I appreciate that. So I want to get this right off the bat here, okay? So I'm a sports fan, okay. and I know many of us listening are too. So let's get this out of the way. Tell us about what it was like winning that college national championship. Who was it with? Well, that was with the University of British Columbia in Canada. So it was in Canada. And I have to tell you, having a group of people with that intense shared focus on a common goal, and then making sure as coaches, we aligned everything to support achieving that. And then seeing it come to fruition, I mean, what a tremendously gratifying experience, you know, and which applies to any organization and ties into, you know, what we're going to talk about today, of course, ruthless consistency. But seeing that in action was just a real formative experience. Mm, mm, That's great, Michael. Okay, let's get listeners acquainted a little bit with you and your work. So what would you say is your purpose for the work that you do? What is your why? Right. And it's a great question. It does need to start with that. For me, it's to have a positive and significant impact on many people. 
And that might be directly or indirectly. So it could be through the consulting work I do with organizations, with not-for-profits, the uh, writing I do, you know, posting a lot of blogs and the book. I do a lot of speaking as well. So it's, it's basically impacting people. If I can have positive and significant impact, that's what I find most gratifying. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the book is called Ruthless Consistency. Michael, skim the surface for us before we take a deep dive. I mean, why did you write this book and why now? Why I wrote it is because the reality is most strategic change initiatives still fail. And if you look at the statistics over the past roughly 40 years, right, 60, 70, even 80% of strategic change initiatives will fail. So why so much failure? Why is this persistent? So in diving into, you know, why do things fail so often? I've come up with what I think are the, you know, the real keys to consistent execution. And that's what I talk about ruthless consistency. Yeah, yeah. Let's dig in a little deeper as to the why things are failing. You mentioned research. I saw it. 70% of organizational change projects fail. And like you said, it's been going on since the 1970s. And to me, the first thing is like, what in the heck is going on here? What are leaders doing wrong? Well, if I could boil it down to one thing, it's that leaders' decisions and actions are not consistent with their intentions. Mm. So we have intentions, we have big audacious goals, we have visions, we have things we want to achieve. But the reality is our day-to-day decisions and actions aren't consistent with those. They're not consistently consistent. So, you know, we'll do small things to or, or take steps to move in the right direction, but it has to it has to be reflected in everything we say and everything we do. It's that ruthless consistency that is aligned with our intentions. Okay, we'll talk about the ruthless consistency, but first, let's flip the coin to what happens when leaders are inconsistent. Well, we've we've all experienced it. It's when leaders, you know, trumpet excellence but tolerate mediocrity. They say, you know, we're going to fly to the moon, but they don't give people the resources to get there. They give people training, but they don't give them the authority to apply what they've learned. It's these mixed messages and mixed messages kill leaders' credibility. It frustrates people. It undermines strategic change. Marcel, it's these mixed messages that leaders inadvertently send. That's what undermines efforts. Mm, mm. Okay. So I got a lot from the book about how we need to refocus our, well, you know, uh, maybe our priorities even, because sometimes we have competing priorities and, and we're juggling so many things as leaders that, Michael, it's hard to be consistent. So you propose this framework, which is kind of your life's work and the framework for the book, this model for keeping us consistently aligned. And I'd love to now unpack that, if you will. Sure. It's, it's a simple and a hard model. There's only three things. But Marcel, that's like when I was coaching football. And we'd say there's only three things we have to work on. Offense, defense, and special teams. That's it. <laughs> but there's, a, there's a lot underneath that. So The three things are, as leaders, we have to consistently develop the right focus, create the right environment, build the right team. Every strategic change initiative I've ever seen, led, read about, it always comes down to those three things. Have we developed the right focus? Have we created the right environment? And have we built the right team? All right. So here we are, folks. We're about to teach you a clinic. Okay. So again, develop the right focus, create the right environment and build the right team. So we're going to start unpacking each one of those three now. And I want to start, well, obviously with the first one, developing and sustaining the right focus. This is interesting because in focusing to change or focusing on change, leaders spend so much time putting together 
their strategic plans, Michael. They're very good at planning, planning, planning the change process. Now, I'm not going to give away the punchline here because there's something else we need to do after that. But you're saying leaders have to stop strategic planning. Explain. Exactly. Well, the, the issue is strategic planning puts the emphasis on the wrong thing, the planning. Ultimately, it's not about the planning. It's about execution. So even saying strategic planning, you know, I'll say to people, what do you think of when I say strategic planning? They'll say, well, creating the plan or, or it's the plan we come up with. No, it's not about that. It's about the results, the execution. So I want to reprogram leaders. Don't say strategic planning. Stop strategic planning. Focus on strategic management. The, it's a process. It's not an event. How you manage your business from assessment through to planning through to execution. This is an ongoing managed process, strategic planning, you know, developing the plan alone, that's not going to get it done. Mm, okay. So we're missing the execution part. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Okay. And strategic planning saying that focuses on, you know, everything up to the execution, everything but the execution. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're a PhD is in psychology and you bring psychology into the reasons why organizations don't change. In fact, Michael, you call them poisons. Right. What are the poisons? It sounds bad. Well, the point, you know, we have several, there's several poisons. One, of course, is complacency, you know, and the fact is it's human nature. We tend to get complacent over time. So we've got to do things to make sure we shake out of that complacency. You know, we're comfortable. The good is good enough. You know, and a number of people have, have talked and written about this. So one is complacency. Next is arrogance. Mm-hmm. And that's complacency, you know, that, that extra shot of ego involved. You know, it's like, oh, we're better than the others. We got it figured out. You know, uh, you know, they can't keep up with us. Well, unfortunately, you know, ego, having too much ego or not a control ego, that's a great predictor of failure. You know, so ar- arrogance is a, a problem as well. You know, there's the fallacy of extrapolation. We think that, well, you know, things are going well today. They're going to go well into the future. You know, what could possibly go wrong? So, you know, a number of poisons, we have these number of mindsets, and these are psychological. So as leaders, it's important we shake ourselves out of this natural tendency to, to, you know, to be complacent and to think things will continue as they are, you know, and to, you know, jolt the system to make sure we create a case for change. Mm. Okay, so take the example of complacency, for example. Okay, if you call that a poison, what's the antidote for the poison of complacency? Always have an inspiring next goal. Always have an inspiring next goal. And my favorite example, Marcel, is the uh, fashion designer Karl Lagerfeld. And he uh, recently passed, you know, well into his 80s. He had been the head of three fashion houses, Chanel for 35 years, Fendi for over 50 years, and his own fashion house as well. Now, keep in mind, fashion is a world that's changing constantly. It's very fickle, right? This year's fashions are, you know, out of date, you know, almost when they hit the, uh, the store racks. So here was a person who not only changed and created change, never got complacent, would never, you know, dwelled in nostalgia. Here was a person who kept relevant well into his 80s. A great example of always having the next goal, the next season, the next designs, not getting complacent. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the next one is arrogance. And I, w- I want to ask you about what the antidote to the poison of, of arrogance is. But I want to first say that so many people f- confuse arrogance with self-confidence. Self-confidence is good and healthy. It's when it becomes arrogant that it becomes a detriment to your leadership. So what would you say is the antidote to arrogance? 
Well, first of all, realizing it isn't about you, it's through you. And the leaders that are, you know, have authentic humility and realize that, you know, this isn't about your greatness and your, you know, your being a such a fantastic leader. The fact is, and John Maxwell, the you know, prolific author once said this, if you're leading, but no one is following, then you're really just going for a walk. It's not about what you do. It's about what they experience and they do. You can't be successful unless they are successful. So as leaders, we have to understand we're simply the conductors of the orchestra. We're not playing the notes. Mm. It's actually quite accurate that culture, developing culture is part of this having the right focus, developing the right focus. So I want to touch on culture. You have these questions that you offer up in your book. And one of the questions, obviously, is, is about that. And you want leaders to ask themselves, what must our culture look like to win? So what do you recommend? And also, full disclosure, Michael asked me before we hit record to actually touch on the famous line that is usually attributed to Peter Drucker, but I don't think it's actually his original line. Right. The idea that strategy or culture eats strategy for breakfast, which has become you know commonly used now. And against the grain, I don't believe that that's true. And here's why. I think if you have culture without strategy, you know, and without execution, you have a country club. But if you have strategy and execution without culture, you have a sweatshop. Yeah. But if you have strategy and execution with culture, now you've got a high-performing organization. You've got an organization that's engaged and performs. So the kind of culture we want to create is a culture of both engagement and performance. It takes both. Yes, we have to engage the hearts and minds of our people. That gets them energized. That gets the discretionary effort. But we can never lose sight of that culture, that energy needs to be channeled towards our desired intentions. Mm -hmm. Do you have any specific recommendations about how to implement something that's going to lead to having a, a culture to win? So it has to be reflected in everything. It can't be, well, here are three values or here, you know, we're putting everybody through half an hour culture training. You know, culture is a byproduct of the processes we create, the practices we employ, the interactions and conversations we have. Everything leaders say and do is what creates that culture. Mm. So that's, again, why we have to be ruthlessly consistent so yeah. that everything we say, everything we do, the processes we design, the practices we employ, everything in the organization points people to, here's what we stand for, here's what's important, here's what we're striving to achieve. I can't help but just connect that to not only values, your own personal values, but how that also aligns to the organizational values and keeping that ruthlessly consistent. Because I have seen companies literally fold overnight once they violate their values. And, uh, and so I don't know if your thoughts on that. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, that's the ultimate mixed message. When yeah. a company trumpets values but then they see the leaders, you know, doing something against those values. Mm. And it's like, oh, I bought into this. My heart was into this. And now I'm seeing you do the opposite. That guts people. And that's a great example of inconsistency and why leaders have to recognize they're on stage 24-7. People are evaluating everything they say and everything they do. And people, Marcel, are bloodhounds for inconsistency. Ugh. The moment they say one thing, do another, boom, people are on it. Yeah. So that's why, you know, values, especially 
Don't talk about values. Don't post values. Don't trumpet values unless you are going to be an impeccable role model for those values. Mm. Oh, this is so good. Okay, I want to jump to the second component of having ruthless consistency, and that is creating the right environment. So that's the second of the three. What would you say is the most important thing we need to do to create the right environment? Well, what's more important than anything you do is everything you do. And here's what I mean. I learned early on when I looked at why did organizations fail? You know, why these organizations who wanted to implement fail? It was because typically they, they had an initiative. They would push people through training, for example. We got everybody through training, but they failed. Or else they threw lots of resources at people and they failed. Or maybe some had lots of measures and goals and incentives, but they failed. So why? And I was kind of at a loss saying, well, if they're doing all these things, why are they failing? And then it hit me, you know, the light bulb went on. It's because any one of these things alone isn't going to, you know, drive change. Everything has to point people in the right direction. The organizations that were successful had created an environment in which all the messages, all the arrows consistently pointed people in the right direction. It was everything they did that counted. That was what created the right environment. Yeah. Yeah. So sticking to creating the right environment, I'm a leadership coach, you're a leadership coach, and you're saying that leaders must be coaches and not just managers. Explain that. Well, the difference is that coaches take responsibility for the performance of their people. Coaches ask, what do I need to do to help my people perform at their best? You know, what levers do I need to push What or to pull? What buttons do I need to push? What do I need to do? Too often, managers say, here's your job, go to it. And then we come back and evaluate performance a year later to to tell people how they did. Far more effective to be active coaches. And what that means, Marcel, is making sure we're giving people meaningful feedback and guidance about their performance regularly, making sure we're reinforcing the right things, holding people constructively accountable when things aren't getting done. It's we're making sure we take an active role in saying, how can I help them improve? How can I help them perform at their best? Yeah, yeah. So another aspect of creating the right environment is to hold people accountable. But you know, Michael, for many of us, accountability has a negative connotation. It, it implies confrontation and you know, nobody wants that. So you have a different approach to accountability. Right. You, call it, you even have a different term for it. Right. Yeah. Constructive accountability. And I think we need to reframe how leaders think about this, Marcel. Because you're exactly right. They do think of it as uncomfortable. It's, you know, it's, oh, I don't want to do this. It's confrontation. It's conflict. We need to reframe our thinking. The purpose of holding people constructively accountable isn't to to berate them. It's not to belittle them. It's not to beat them up. The reason we hold people accountable is to what? To improve so they get better, right? That's why we hold, there's a very positive intention there. So we have to reframe our thinking. How can we hold people constructively accountable to help them improve. So again, as a coach, that means working with them, You know, not talking to them about they're a failure, they didn't get this done, but working with them. What do they need to do to improve, but what do we as coaches need to do to help enable them to improve? Have we created the right environment? Have we equipped them with the right tools? Have we given them the right information? Have we supported them with the right processes? Constructive accountability means both of us have a role, the leader and the team member, And the purpose, again, is to lead to improvement. It's a positive intent. That's why I love the coaching process is that this speaks to consistency. It's not a one-time event at the end of the year where you hold people's fire for, you know, failing to perform, but it's consistent, co-active 
it's a collaboration between you and your, your employee. And it's basically, it's a way to facilitate their learning and development. And I think that speaks to creating the right environment. So really appreciate that. Um, so before we transition out of creating the right environment, you, we have to value our people. That's one of the principles you mentioned. Now, that's such a broad general term, value people. You can go so many different places. So how do we do that consistently and do it well? Well, valuing people really comes down to three things, Marcel. Respect, trust, and caring. And when we demonstrate people, when they feel that we respect them, we trust them, and we care about them as individuals, then you engage people at a much deeper level, at a human level. And when you connect with the heart, you know, the head will follow. Mm. So we want to connect with hearts and minds here. And we do that by valuing people. And when people feel that, you can see that in an organization. You can see the energy when they know that people truly care. And I'll tell you, now more than ever, with the uncertainty, the anxiety of our, you know, our COVID t- times, it's critical that leaders consistently convey that they value their people. They care about them as individuals, not just as objects of production, <laughs> you know, but as people, as human beings. You know, that, it's that human element. And you know, when we connect at that level, you know, it's the old thing that you know, we hire employees, but human beings show up to work. And we have to acknowledge that when we connect at a human level, we have a much more meaningful engagement and relationship with people, and they feel much more engaged with their work. Mm, I love what you said. When you connect to the heart, the head will follow. I so often teach uh, leaders in, in some of my courses where I talk about how when you engage people emotionally and intellectually, it releases discretionary effort. People have to understand that humans are wired for that kind of connectivity and feeling like they belong and, and being cared for. Because when that happens, the discretionary effort part is that they go above and beyond even their normal job description. They'll do things that you didn't expect and because it's intrinsic motivation, not carrots and sticks. Exactly right. And intrinsic, again, we're getting to the psychology of motivation, right? What makes people want to do things? And when you can connect with their identity, how people feel about themselves, do they feel valued? Do they feel they're doing something meaningful? Do they feel they're part of a team? They belong, that they're making a contribution. When you can connect with those psychological incentives, now you have an engaged team member. So we have to really, you know, great, great coaches are great psychologists. And they really understand that not everybody responds the same way. You know, what works for you may not work for someone else. So great coaches really have to see it through the eyes of each person. Mm, Love it. Okay, let's talk about the last component of Ruthless Consistency, and that's building the right team. So lots of approaches there, but one is to hire for what you're likely to overlook. Give us an example of that. Well, when we hire people, what we typically look for are experience and skills. Have they done the job? Can they do the job? But all of us have seen the situation where we've got someone who looked great on the resume, they've done the job, their skills say they can do it, but for some reason, they end up not doing it. And the reason is what we overlook is a third category, which I place a lot of weight on, not just experience, not just skills, but traits. Do they have the traits to be successful? And that can be things like, are they conscientious? Are they curious? Do they take initiative? Do they take responsibility? Do they have a competitive spirit? Are they naturally collaborative? If we can assess and tap into people with the right traits, often people with the right traits, they'll make up for the lack of experience. Mm. They'll be hungry to develop the skills. They'll figure it out. 
You want people with the right traits and then the skills and the experience augments that, but that's what we typically overlook. Mm. Michael, bringing this full, full circle, if I'm a CEO, speak to the CEO that's bought into this model of ruthless consistency and these three components we talked about. What's the first step? Is there a first step? The first step is to have a very honest conversation in the mirror and ask yourself, how committed have I truly been you know, to achieving uh, our goals? Have I done what I've needed to do? Have I been ruthlessly consistent? Have I helped people develop and sustain the right focus? Have I created the right environment? Have I built the right team? It starts, Marcel, in the mirror and having that honest conversation. And there's no right or wrong answer. Just be honest with yourself and use that as your starting point for starting to, you know, for taking a ruthlessly consistent approach to achieving your goals. Yeah. Yeah. There's your case for humility right there as well. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So, Mike, we have a tradition here where we make the link between leadership and practical love. The whole reason we call this show Love in Action, love being a verb that inspires and empowers and motivates others to flourish. So how does a leader love well in business day in and day out? It comes back to that caring, you know, that deep caring. And when you legitimately, when you deeply care about your work, about your team, about the difference you're making, about the impact you're having. When you genuinely and deeply care about that, that gets expressed and manifested through all of your actions, how you present, how you project, and people can see that. Mm. So whatever you're doing as a leader, make sure it's truly something that you care about because yeah. then you don't have to fake it. It just gets naturally projected into who you are. Yeah, it has to be authentic. It has to come from the heart. Yeah. Right. Okay. Michael, before we wrap up, is there any question I didn't ask that I should have that's pertinent to the discussion? Well, the, the only thing I might add is that leaders are often focused on the challenges. You know, here are all the obstacles we're faced. Here are the challenges we've got. Here are the, you know, the things we have to overcome. And at the end of the day, it's not you versus those obstacles. It's not you versus the challenges. It's not you versus the competition. At the end of the day, it's you versus you. Hmm. If you do what you need to do, what you can do, things will take care of themselves. Put the responsibility on yourself. It's you versus you. Uh, wow. Powerful. Okay. So we end our episodes with two final questions. One is personally, Michael, what's really tugging at your heart right now that you'd like us to know? Right now, what's tugging at my heart is we are in a time where we have a great need for leadership and not just in business and society overall. We have a great need for leadership at all levels and all kinds of institutions. So I think it's critical what I would implore people is to make sure you're aware of what that, you know, that, that higher calling of leadership, the responsibility of leadership, not just for today, but into the future. You know, I think we're at a time now where we need some good, strong role models of leadership. So that's what's been tugging at my heart. Mm -hmm. And finally, you close us out your way with that one thing, that final takeaway that you'd like to bring us home with. If you want to turn your ambition into strategy, your strategy into reality, then make sure your decisions, your actions are ruthlessly consistent with your intentions. Because it's that relentless alignment of actions and decisions with intentions, that's the foundation of success. That's the fundamental truth. Yeah. Well, you've certainly opened up my eyes a lot more now with this book, the emphasis on consistency 
and the framework, the model that you teach is so needed nowadays. So I want to thank you for your time, sir. It's been a pleasure and we are all better for it. Fantastic. Great to be with you, Marcel. Thank you. Yeah. And if people want to connect with you, Michael, where do they go? Our, our website is makingstrategyhappen.com. Very intuitive. <laughs> makingstrategyhappen.com. That's where you'll see, uh, I posted over 400 blogs. You'll see, uh, you'll have access to the book. You'll get a sense of what we do. That's the website. That's the place to go, makingstrategyhappen.com. Yes. And he is Michael Kanick. And I appreciate you sitting with us today and expanding our minds. And thank you, Love and Action Nation, for spreading the movement. And we would be grateful if you'd share this episode with others and leave us a review on iTunes. Also, visit the archives for other great conversations with the world's top thought leaders. You can find them on my website at marcelschwantes.com. Finally, if you or your company would like to sponsor episodes of the Love in Action podcast, let's chat. Reach me on my website or hit me up on LinkedIn, Marcel Schwantes. Next week, I sit down with Michael and Glenn Parker to discuss their new book, Positive Influence, the leader who helps people become their best self. For Michael Kanick and my production team at One Stone Creative, check them out if you have podcasting needs of your own. I'm Marcel Schwantes. Until next time, don't forget, the future of leadership is love in action. Believe it, try it, and be convinced. Thanks for joining us on the Love in Action podcast. If you enjoyed this show and want to help get the word out, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. 